Welcome to Training for Ultra, the podcast. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. And just really abbreviated, if you want to try out Hammer Nutrition, feel free to use my promo code 252888 and you'll save 15% off your first order. Definitely go check out Hammer Nutrition and also Sufferfest Beer. They are coming to Colorado very soon. And if you don't live in California or Colorado, I believe you can actually order some beer off of sufferfestbeer.com so check them out and then big thank you to bigger than the trail tommy and his charity are supporting my ccc training updates so really appreciate that and patreon supporters thank you guys really um you know appreciate your support if you want to find out more about that and everything else have some merchandise on trainingforultra.com check that out Let's get right to it. This is an awesome episode. I really enjoyed talking to Tommy Rivers Pusey. Our um, our conversation gets pretty deep, actually, when we talk about running in that flow state. And then look forward to um, hearing a little bit about how he hallucinated during the Run Rabbit Run race that he did. So this is a great episode. Enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your training. Have a great week, guys. See ya. I'm joined again by Tommy Rivers Pusey. He's sponsored by Ultra, Swiftwick, H&M, First Endurance, Nathan, Electric Sunglasses, Love the Pain, and Epic Bars. Tommy, welcome back, man. Yeah, great to be here, Rob. I appreciate it. So, the last time we spoke, it was about the new new movie with you and your brother um, called Brothers. So thank you again for, you know, coming back and, and doing a full interview with me today. Yeah, of course. I mean, you're, you're a fascinating guy. I, I think I just scratched the surface on, you know, doing some due diligence here before we spoke. And I was blown away, like the amount of different countries that you spent time in. Kind of walk me through how, how did you, like, where did you grow up and, um, Tell me, like, how you got so interested in exploring the world. Uh, all right. So, um, yeah, so I was born in eastern New Mexico, just right on the border of you know, West Texas. And I grew up in a – it was a cowboy community. There were, there were probably more cows and people and, you know, more, <laughs> more ranches and farms than there were houses. And um, – I lived there until I was about 10, and um, we were pretty free-range kids uh, growing up in, in the desert. And, uh, we weren't, you know, really encouraged to go outside. It was it was kind of it was kind of the rule that you weren't allowed in the house as long as the as long as the sun was up. And so, um, I, when I was 10 years old, we we moved to Eastern Oregon, and even though it was you know, a huge change in latitude. The, the, the town was really similar to where I'd come from in New Mexico. So it was, again, it was a farming community and it was based on the economy was, was agriculturally based, lots of farms, lots of cowboys and, um, different ranches. And 
you know, that's kind of, that's kind of how I grew up. And, uh, even though it was, you know, like I said, two different distinct locations that the culture was very similar. And, um, I lived there till high school and then, um, you know, growing up as, in, in a small town, you, you try really hard to, to differentiate yourself. And so you try to not be a hick, even though you, you know, you, you grow up in a hick town and then, um, you realize that you kind of become a product of your environment. And, um, there was a lot of, I guess, I guess, uh, there's a, there's a tendency to be a little bit closed minded when you grow up in small towns, but, um, my parents did a really good job of exposing us to a lot of different ideas and, um, you know, through just through the different things that they taught us. And so, um, you know, after that, I, I spent, I guess the better part of 12 years, um, just traveling, uh, between different countries and, um, Hawaii became home. And so I, I lived, I lived in Hawaii and, um, basically between semesters and, you know, summer breaks, I would spend different periods of time in mostly throughout, uh, Latin America. So central and South America and Mexico and, uh, any opportunity I had, I'd, I'd sneak away for a little bit. And, I, I yeah, just, so that kind of, <laughs> I was blown away. I, I read the line that you had spent years living in the slums of, of Rio in Brazil and you were managing a treehouse eco resort. I just, that was fascinating. I, I had never heard anyone mention that before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, those are, those are two separate escapades. So, um, I spent a couple of years, uh, doing humanitarian work. I was, a, I was a missionary when I was young in the, in the slums of Rio. And then, um, I guess that was the first exposure I had to Latin America and, you know, learning a different language. And, uh, and then at another point I lived in, um, I managed an eco resort with my family. Um, I was married at the, you know, at the time, um, still married, um, to, to my wife, Stephanie. And we had a daughter, our first daughter, uh, Harper at the time. And, um, we got this this gig opened up to go manage uh, an eco resort in the Atlantic rainforest uh, in the state of uh, Bahia in I guess that's more northeastern Brazil and um, it was it wasn't the first time that I'd been exposed to ecotourism but that was essentially what we did is uh, the idea behind the resort was to have these uh, <laughs> these bungalows that were built in the trees. So they were essentially these five star tree houses. And, um, by having this, you know, the natural habitat, they were able to preserve the rainforest for ecotourism rather than clear cut it for farming. And so, um, they needed somebody that spoke English and Spanish and Portuguese. And so I, uh, and was willing to relocate. So I, we, we moved there and, and lived in the jungle for a while. And <laughs> they're, they're probably looking over maybe two resumes. That's <laughs> pretty specific and very specialized. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't do well in the Brazilian uh, rainforest. I, my fear of tarantulas and whatnot, I, I don't know how long I'd last, honestly. <laughs> oh, there, there, are, there weren't many tarantulas, actually. But, you know, the, the reason we ended up leaving was because we, we, uh, that's a whole different story and probably a book, but it's, uh, <laughs> we got in sideways with the, with some of the, uh, well, 
the police militias and one of the rival cartels in the area and we yeah. ended up having to bounce out of there so probably a good idea um so within all this you know all these explorations around the globe where did running um begin for you i know you've always you probably never stopped running i i mean were you training at these different locations like when did you actually um start focusing your energies on on running um so man that's a good question i i guess uh man we never really i I say we all the time and usually when i say we i'm talking about myself and my older brother uh jake or jacob so um he's a runner as well he's he's largely the reason that i ever got into competitive running and um like i said we were we were free-range kids and we were expected to entertain ourselves outside of the house and so um you know we had little bikes little little huffies little bmx bikes or whatever but but mostly our our transportation was on foot and and that represented you know freedom and um it was it's always been you know kind of the mode of transportation and it's also been just you know you just do it because of the exhilaration of it you know like you see kids on a playground at school and and running is always associated with with play and you know it's just so odd that everybody tells kids to like you teach a kid to to walk and then you teach a kid to run or you know you try to coach them and or at least there are these these, there are these motor milestones that you get excited about and then as soon as they start running you try to tell them to stop running and you know walk and you hear it at the pool you hear it in schools you hear it (laughs) in churches and malls and i mean just anywhere it's just like like the the overriding command to children is to walk and um and our parents always encouraged uh that we'd be active and so I, I i guess i i never really stopped running and um i think a lot of people they go through this decade of of being told they're not supposed to run and um and so they stop and then and then as they get older it's like the the consequences of that catches up and so people try to encourage kids to get into intramural sports and you know high school sports with this hope that they'll somehow regain this love of running and um i guess i never lost it so um started out as freedom and then eventually uh jake got interested in running uh, competitively because he he wanted to be i guess more competitive as a basketball player and um so he started to run and and, you know, as, as a little brother, you, you, you basically, you do whatever your older brother does just, just because you want to be like him. And so, uh, yeah. it didn't matter. It didn't matter what he did. He could have chose any path and I, I would have followed it, but he happened to choose running. And, um, so I, you know, I played soccer when I was a kid, uh, and we were pretty active. And, um, so when he was in middle school, he had this coach that, that, you know, he allowed me to jump into some of the cross country meets. And I, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade and the kids were in you know, eighth grade. And, um, he, he let me just jump in unattached to these different races. And I guess that was the first kind of competitive experience I had with long distance running. Um, and it was just fun. You know, there were no expectations. It was like, you know, the, they fire the gun, you sprint, 
as long as you can and 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 then you walk and you sprint again and then you walk and, <laughs> and eventually you make it to the finish line sort of thing so yeah that's how it started um yeah just as a kid i suppose but and then so were you were you actually running like off and on when you had that time in brazil and when you were doing you know work in the volcanic mountains of costa rica like you know, <laughs> yeah um just Again, hiking I, and right. Yeah, running. there was a lot of hike, a lot of hiking. Um, that's man, that's a lot of, it's a lot of time, time to cover. But basically, during all of that time, I ran collegiate. I, I ran, I ran competitively in high school, and I was, I was absolutely obsessive with running when I was in high school. I, okay. I grew up, like I said, in Oregon, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a in a blue collar town, and you know we had a chip on our shoulder because there was a lot that we wanted to prove. Um, we were the smallest school in the largest division in Oregon. So we were competing against these, uh, private schools from Portland and Bend and, um, Eugene. And there was a legacy in, in Oregon at the time. And, you know, this was sort of this revitalization that took place in the United States at that time. And there was this campaign that came out by, by Nike at the time. And it said, who is the next Steve Prefontaine or who is the next pre? And, as this, you know, hungry kid trying to prove myself in Oregon, um, I thought it was a, I thought it was a prophecy. You know, I, I, it wasn't even like, it didn't even occur to me at the time that it was a, it was just this campaign to sell, sell shoes. It, it felt like a, it felt like a prophecy to me. And, and I thought, I thought I was the, the chosen one. And, and so I, you know, I worked my butt off. Um, I was more regimented, I think with my training as as a high school uh just a kid you know 15 16 year old than i think i have ever been since um i'd wake up and run before school and i'd i'd run after school and then you know i'd come home and eat dinner and i'd go out for another run in the evening and i'd i'd do <laughs> you know i i i didn't i was a little i guess myopic in my understanding of how everything worked i i thought you know the harder you train the better you'll be and so i mean years and years and years of a thousand push-ups a day and a thousand sit-ups a day and you know 500 pull-ups a day i mean things like that were um just worked so hard and um you know and as i (laughs) as i got older it start it started with this nike campaign though that was like almost the driving force like idolizing pre and in thinking that uh, you know you you could become the next prefontaine you know that that was a huge part of it that was a part of the culture of growing up in oregon is is that that's who you're compared to and and pre was this tough pretty high bar <laughs> yeah but but you know he the the reason he was so appealing to young runners is because um because he didn't come from you know, privilege. He didn't come from, and when I say privilege, that's so relative, but you know, he didn't, he came from this blue collar, hardworking class. Um, he was just, just, uh, you know, just middle America sort of didn't have any, um, any advantages rather than just a tolerance for pain. And, And that was something that, you know, that was something that in my mind, it was like, I, I can do that. I can suffer. I can work hard. I can put in the time. And, um, I think that came from the mentality of growing up in these cowboy towns where, where your value in that very specific society, that little microcosm 
you you were valued based off of your word and based off of how how hard you worked and so you showed up on time you didn't complain and you just busted your ass all day long and if you were able to do that then you would get rehired you know by these farmers and these cowboys and and that was that was how you were valued in society was based off of your your work ethic and so that that translated into running as well it's like okay if 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 what it takes to become to become great is is hard work then um you know i can do that and you know that that levels the playing field and and it's it becomes this this meritocracy rather than um you know something that you have to i guess be born into and i i was i was obsessive with all of this stuff from a young age and so i i man i i obsessed over i mean the kind of I had, I had this thing called the encyclopedia of the Olympics. And and this is just like a 10 year old kid. And I, I had that thing literally memorized. I knew, I knew who finished what place top five, uh, in every Olympics and every distant event from, you know, from the very beginning, all the way up to the present. I, I knew the back stories I had. I mean, as a kid, I had posters of Emil Zatopek and, uh, Pavo Nermi and, um, La Severin and, uh, uh, Hisham El Garouge and Ayla Gebrselassie and um, Paul Tergat and you know all of these greats you know from from going back to you know the early days of the Olympics and I I knew everything about these guys' lives I I idolized them I you know those those were the people that I that I wanted to be like when I grew up and so I I read the nuances and you know I heard that that Zadopek used to run 200 meters or he'd try to do repeats holding his breath and so, so that was something Jeez. I do you know after after practice I <laughs> after high school you know running practice I, I would I would see how long I could run you know holding my breath and yeah you know, I think the furthest I made it was I think 200 meters and every time you'd, you your hearing would go then your eyesight would go and then you'd you'd black out and hit the track you know? and, and it was it was one of those things that I thought it would make me faster you know it was it was it was definitely a work harder not smarter mentality and um and I was driven and I you know was full of fire and I I thought that that's what it took and and inevitably I ended up broken you know over and over and over and um the fire was there but I didn't have an understanding of the process and so I ended up I ended up injured a lot I I ran I I think I was pretty competitive in high school um some of my best times were you know time trials that we did in practice and I never really got to I never showed up really on on these big races but I yeah I, I ran I ran fast when I was in high school and um but then I would always I would what, always get what it. kind of miles were you throwing down mile time uh mile time um I was in Oregon, so we ran the 1500. So I, I think the fastest 1500 I ran, I think I was a sophomore. Uh, I think I ran 404 a couple of times. Um, wow. I'm not quite sure what that converts to, but I, yeah. I, my as a it converts as a, to being super fast. Yeah. <laughs> as a, <laughs> I, I wanted to break as as a sophomore. I run. I wanted to run. Um, you know, I knew who held the course record or the you know the the sophomore state record in high school, and it was, it was three fifty four. It was a guy that went to Klamath High, um, 
you know, I wanted to break that time. I, I thought that I was going to run 822 for the 3000 meters as a sophomore. And so I knew exactly what that meant. It was, <laughs> it was, you know, 60, 68, 67, 67, 67, 67, 60. I mean, I knew exactly, you know, down to the minute what that would take. And, you know, I, I, I lived that, that was my, that was my reality. And, um, my five year plan was, I was going to break all of those records and I was going to be, Steve Prefontaine's 1500 and, and 3000 meter record. And I was going to, you know, I wasn't going to go to college. I was, I was going to go straight into the Olympics. I was going to become a professional runner and I was going to break all of these times. I mean, that was my five-year plan as a, as a 14 year old. And, um, you know, that, that prophecy, you know, that I had in my mind that, that who is the next pre that, that was something that, you know, every, every moment of every day that that's what drove me. And, as I as I got older, I realized that that the prophecy was was actually <laughs> about someone else, and it was this soft-spoken, blonde, blue-eyed kid from Central Catholic High School, and coached by <laughs> Alberto Salazar named Galen Rupp, and <laughs> and uh, you know he he was he was a year younger than me, and so when he came into the scene, it was it kind of disrupted all of that, and. Um, and a lot of times, you know, the races became this question of, okay, who's going to get second place um, behind Galen? And you start um, start questioning yourself. Well, you realize it's like, um, I, yeah. I mean, I I was never, you know, I was never the the very fastest in the state. You know, I I would always try to, I guess, I, at my best, I was in that the top ten in Oregon and. Um, but, you know, you realize that it's something that you worked for really hard, these very specific goals, and then you see somebody else rise up and start to to actually accomplish it. And, you know, props to them. They were they were smart. They were meticulous with their training. They understood the process, and they, they worked um, smarter, not harder, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to hate. I wanted to hate him <laughs> as a kid. And I, you know, I wanted to hate all the other kids that grew up in these, these private schools that I felt like they, you know, they had advantages over me and, um, but they, they were just nice, nice kids and, you know, independent of any other, um, you know, uh, any foul play that, you know, people have criticized those guys of, um, they were always kind and always really gracious. And so that was something that, you know, I admire you as still, a human being. Are you still in touch with Galen at this point? Like, do you guys? No, no. Know? I I never knew Galen. I mean, I okay. you know besides he just besides showed up me, at the meets and laid right, it down. Besides, right. We knew each other as competitors, and I I don't think I was even on his radar. But he was he was on everybody's radar. And yeah. Um, when I was a senior in high school, it came down to uh. Uh, we were in the running for the the team title um for the oregon you know state cross country title so uh it was us and them and jesuit high school and uh grant high school i believe and then some different high schools in bend and uh this is funny going back it's like i'm reliving my glory days as a 17 year old but um anyway yeah so we knew each other as competitors but we lived on opposite sides of the states and they were different worlds as far as you know everything was concerned so it seems like, I mean, is the the point where you start traveling almost that realization that you're not the next pre and that, you know, you've literally done everything you can do and just it's 
you know, your, your dreams versus realities aren't meshing. And so you almost go to find yourself in a sense. Is that sort of yeah, what's I playing see. out? Well, I suppose. I mean, that sounds pretentious for me to say that I realized I wasn't the next pre. I mean, I realized that early on, but it was, it was, uh, it was, I, you know, I had a lot of struggles and, um, my senior year of high school, I, I had high hopes again of, you know, running really fast and I, early season, I ran faster than I ever had. And then, um, <laughs> I ended up traveling abroad and I contracted, um, trichinosis actually. It's this, this <laughs> sickness that you get from consuming raw pork. And I was, um, anyway, that, that ruined my, that, that ended my senior, uh, track season. And, and so, um, I had hoped maybe I could run for Columbia or maybe run for Stanford or, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of these bigger schools. And, um, that reality, you know, came to a halt and, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, I, basically after that I left for, for a couple of years to, um, to Brazil. And like I said, I was, so I was were a missionary. Your, were your grades, I mean, you're, you're a sharp guy. Like I've, I, I don't know many people who know as many languages as you do. Um, well, I, have you always yeah, studied I, hard or does that just come natural to you? Yeah, I had good grades. I, um, my parents were both, um, my father was an academic and my mom was, you know, she was an artist, but she was a professor and, um, and my father was a professor when I was a kid, you know? And, um, so I, there was always this expectation that we'd be well-read. We were exposed to a lot of literature and, um, and, you know, we'd sit around the dinner table and we would discuss these ideas. And so when I ended up in college, uh, I found myself in a cultural anthropology class and they were debating different ideas and philosophies and different theories. And, and, you know, I was like, wow, this feels like, this feels like home. This feels like Sunday dinner. And, um, you know, so I, I kind of stayed in that group because it felt so familiar because I'd been doing that since I was five years old. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, we learned how to formulate arguments and you realize that if you wanted to have a good argument, you needed to understand the background. And so, yeah, we were always encouraged to, to study and, uh, yeah, so I'm kind of not quite sure where I'm at here, but basically I spent about, about 12 years back and forth between Brazil and Hawaii became home. I went to university out there, uh, and, you know, became a cultural anthropologist. And I also studied exercise physiology at the time and then also studied, uh, uh, Spanish and French and, uh, pre-med and ended up kind of back and forth. Um, like I said, during semesters and winter breaks, I'd, I'd bounce down to South America or Central America and try to, I guess, become more adept with the language or, um, study a, a how, culture. How many languages do you know? Oh, um, I, the first language I learned was Portuguese. And, um, and then when I came home from, from Brazil, I, I found myself getting hired to do work because people thought that I spoke Spanish. And then I realized that it was, you know, I wasn't getting hired because of, (laughs) because of my impeccable character. It was because people thought I could communicate with, um, with people in Spanish. And so I, (laughs) I, uh, I realized that Americans were pretty, 
um, ignorant in terms of geography. <laughs> so, so instead of, instead of correcting them, I just, I, I learned Spanish. I, I read, um, I read all of the Harry Potter books in Spanish actually. And that was kind of how I learned. And then, you know, I, I took off by myself and traveled through Mexico until I was able to speak it fluently. And, um, so I learned how to speak Spanish and then, uh, I wanted to learn French and, so I spent a couple of years just reading as much as I could in French and I never actually lived in a, in a purely French speaking country. And so I didn't really, that language didn't crystallize in terms of being able to speak it as well as the others. But, um, when I was younger, I had a friend who was deaf and so I, I learned how to sign. Um, so I, I don't know, just, just the easy ones, just the, just the Latin based, you know, languages. But, well, no, I, I, at a time, there was a time in my life that so I, no Mandarin? I thought that I will I mean, come on now. No, see, that, that was the thing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I realized that, uh, I thought at one point that I'd want to, uh, be an interpreter for the United Nations. And my wife, you know, um, Stephanie, she went to school and studied conflict uh, journalism at, at a United Nations university in Central America. And so I was like, well, this would be really cool. And, you know, we're kind of already in the system. And, and then it realized, you know, I realized it kind of occurred to me that, um, I was like, yeah, I've got Spanish and Portuguese and French and, uh, and English. And then I realized that all I had left <laughs> was Russian and, and Mandarin and Arabic. And, and I was like, oh man, that's probably not going to happen. So, so anyway, that that dream kind of fizzled out but so when do you start training for your first either half marathon or marathon i'm assuming that uh, came up first right yeah yeah i ran in college and and i wasn't good and um the same thing i'd get injured and um it's because i was in hawaii i'd spend i'd spend uh nine months surfing and then three months trying to get in shape for cross-country season we didn't have a track team so um i'd always come in over ambitious and and uh out of shape and end up getting hurt so after college is when finally um training kind of came together i think and um a lot of that had to do with you know some things that i learned in central america um but i think the first let's see the first marathon that i tra- it was a first it was a half marathon actually i i ran a half marathon out in hawaii in honolulu they it's called the hapalua half marathon and and what it was it was the very first year that they did it they took they took 10 local hawaiian males and 10 local hawaiian females and then they brought over um <laughs> sounds silly but they brought over i think five or six world-class uh kenyan males <clears throat> and they set this thing up on a on a handicap where based off of everybody's half marathon pr um if everybody ran that pr they would hit the finish line at the same time so everybody was sent off in waves and it was it was kind of a cluster yeah (laughs) predator and prey sort of thing and i i actually i actually won it and um and it was like man i'm trying to remember it was for a lot of money at the time i think it was like five thousand dollars or something and i was like whoa and uh and so that gave me the confidence to to I guess, um, branch out and I guess, uh, I could, I could, I could call myself a professional athlete, even though I had no right saying that because I, you know, I, I'd earned enough money for, for one month's, um, bills. And, um, (laughs) 
and so that kind of is what what launched me into um i guess trying to pursue that as you know something that i wanted to do for the rest of my life and um you know fast forward a bit i ended up in in flagstaff arizona and um and started to you know immerse myself in the community and um you know i became friends with these guys that had been my idols growing up you know guys that i mean really they i had pictures of them on my wall next to zadapek and prefontaine and lasevier and you know some of these guys i um i remember they're joining you on group runs oh more like i'm joining them you know trying to yeah <laughs> trying to, try to tag along and um trying to play it cool and and not really say anything but i was i was all i was so blown away with how um how welcoming that community was in flagstaff and, and flagstaff for anybody that's you know never been there before it's it sits at mm, it's around 7200 feet of elevation and uh there's this huge network of endurance athletes that live there and then also endurance athletes that come in and train from time to time and it's i guess the best way i could describe it is this group of elite athletes who aren't elitist in personality if that makes sense so um there's almost this sense of people aren't starstruck there's this sense of almost star apathy because there's so many great runners there that the community uh values these athletes based off of how willing they are to give back and based off of these intrinsic components of their moral character like if they're kind or if they're outgoing or if they're if they're genuinely good people rather than you know how many olympics they've qualified for or how many world championships they've qualified for which is which is really kind of awesome because it it makes it so um there's not this pomp that you find in other in other hubs of you know yeah athleticism and um it really breaks people down to just whether they're genuine human beings or not and and that's you know it doesn't matter if you've had great success internationally if if you're if you're not fun to be around you know people lose interest real quick and um and so that was a really a really great um you know community to to start to kind of immerse myself in and and the currency there is um i know it sounds weird but but it's it's giving of your time and, and your energy and, you know, investing time back in the community. And there's a, there's a couple of different, you know, workouts throughout the week. Um, Tuesday nights, there's a team run Flagstaff. It's this community team where, you know, anybody can come out for it. People that have, have never run that are just getting into running or all the way up to, you know, professional athletes with these incredible resumes um will come out and they'll do a track workout together and uh it's coached by local professional athletes and you know a board an association um and so it's these professional athletes giving back their time to the community and then uh on thursday mornings there's uh the bagel run uh we meet at biff's bagels and it's it's usually like a an easy 10 mile shakeout and uh that's kind of a combination of road runners and trail runners and ultra runners and track runners and um everybody from different brands and different uh different disciplines and distances and and uh surfaces they're all kind of sharing miles together and sharing trails and 
and then Sunday morning there's a a Sunday morning long run. It's just what it's called. So somebody will choose a destination. It's usually a high altitude mountain road, and anywhere between you know five and sixty people will show up depending on who's there. And somebody will usually drive fluid. So somebody will drive a car, and you know you'll give them their bottles before and. And then they'll they'll stop throughout and set the bottles up like like you're running a marathon, you know. And you can you grab your bottle and then you know down some fluids and drop the bottle. And you know whoever that person is that's just volunteered to drive fluids that day just <laughs> picks all the bottles up and drives to the next spot. And I, I mean it's it's crazy that you know that kind of network exists. But um, so did you move to Flagstaff knowing about this community? I'd heard about it. I didn't realize how. Um, how I guess I was pleasantly surprised at how welcoming the community was. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'd heard about different running programs at the time. Um, there was a, a running team here called McMillan elite. Um, it was coached by Greg McMillan uh, and, you know, Greg, Greg worked with Arthur Lydiard, um when he was younger and, um, you know, learned kind of that, those philosophies and, and at the time, um, Jack Daniels was also doing some research. You know, he he was based in Flagstaff and um, doing research. And he was actually one of the first people that I met. I did some. I was basically a lab rat for him and did some research for him. And so, just really quickly, I fell into this group of of people that I, you know, I'd read their books and I'd I'd heard about them growing up and I'd sort of seen them as these these giants in the in the world of endurance athletics both you know both the athletes and then also the coaches and the the experts and um i really quickly fell into that community and these people became um my peers rather than people that uh were just kind of the untouchables before and um yeah so so that gives you the confidence to start start training i assume for a marathon is that where you started or did you Go yeah. for the half. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I I know you keep asking, and I'm I get off on these tangents. Um, no, yeah. that was that was fascinating. Like I um, I didn't know that background, so that's yeah, awesome. So I actually, when I first moved here, I I wanted to be a a professional uh, triathlete. Um, I had injured myself so many times when I was in high school that I I spent a lot of time on a bike. Um, cross training and that was a way that I could try to you know extinguish that fire that I had um or at least use that fire for something productive without overtraining through running and so I I actually got into competitive cycling when I was a kid uh in high school I mean and uh my first sponsor was actually um to compete cycling rather than running um and so excuse me I I always thought, you know, if I had the time and if I was able to focus the energy, I could, I could do well at long distance triathlon. And so, uh, moved to Flagstaff. There aren't a lot of triathletes here. It's not like Boulder. Um, Flagstaff is more of a running town. So I, I trained by myself that first year I, I would put in, I was only running maybe 60 miles a week and I was cycling probably 400 miles a week. Um, there's this 80 mile loop that I would do, uh, four or five days a week and then I would try to go for a longer seven or eight hour ride usually 100 miles or so and um or more I guess but and then I would swim as part of the master's team and uh 
basically trying to teach myself how to swim as an adult because I'd never competed in swimming. So I did that for about a year and a half and um, ended up qualifying for Kona and I went and, and raced in Kona. Uh, and that was a really, really cool experience. Um, and then shortly after, I took some time kind of as a as a kind of as a break i i increased my running volume uh and decreased my cycling and swimming volume just kind of over i think it was maybe december uh the month of december we had a lot of snow it was cold so i was like yeah, i don't want to be on a bike and i don't want to go to master's swim when it's when there's snow outside in the morning and um i just started running a little bit more and i i jumped into a uh a marathon down in Phoenix. Um, and I had no expectations for it. I, I didn't know. I, I actually went down there cause I, I felt like I needed to do a workout, like a tempo workout because all I had done is logged easy miles for about a month. And, um, there was another guy, uh, a Kenyan guy from who's based out of Albuquerque. Um, and we started racing and I, I caught up to him and we kind of went back and forth and I, you know, I wasn't paying attention to splits and, um, he broke away from me with about a mile to go. And I think I ended up running maybe two twenty two and, um, and, you know, being in Flagstaff, that's not, there's, that's a dime a dozen sort of thing. And so I, I, my perspective it no oh, i mean man. Really, that's so, great so my, pers- my perspective had kind of changed but i i got what i felt like was a disproportionate amount of attention for that because you know i'm training with these guys that are doing easy runs with these guys that run you know 210 or or even even faster 205 um yeah. and so in my mind it was like Oh, that was cool. Um, that hurt really bad. And <laughs> I mean, mentally, you didn't you didn't have the swim or the bike, so it's like a piece of cake, right? I mean, well, and the other thing, this is what I think in retrospect. At the time, it didn't it didn't realize I, I didn't realize that I was reaching kind of a uh, a crossroads in my in my training and I guess my my pursuits. But um, I guess that kind of was the catalyst and. Um, what I think happened actually is when I was training for, um, yeah, this is probably going to sound controversial if I explain it, but when I was training for triathlon, I, I was training at high elevation. I was, I was training probably close to 40 hours a week of just, of just easy aerobic training. And because my, because I was cycling so much and swimming so much, I weighed about 180 pounds when I raced at Kona and that was in October. And then I took, um, basically November and December, I, I didn't spend as much time cycling or swimming and I lost about 25 pounds of muscle mass. Um, and so when I did race that, that marathon in, it was in January, um, I went from 180 pounds to about 155 pounds and over the course of basically about eight weeks. And so looking back, um, I think what probably happened is I, I still had a vascular system, which was proportionate to a 180 pound athlete. And I had the blood volume that was proportionate to a 180 pound athlete, but I was 155 pounds. And so it was, 
I think it was physiologically the same type of advantage that somebody would get by by blood doping um, by yeah. having an extra having extra blood volume um, and all it was That's was and this isn't something that I'm you know prescribing that people do because it just it just happened to work out at, at the time and I, I don't know if that was the reason but I, I went from being 185 pounds to 155 pounds within about eight weeks just because I I stopped cycling, stopped swimming, and just increased my running volume so much. And um, I was actually, I was, <laughs> I was, I was vegan at the time as well. And so I, um, I shed weight really quick when I started doing that, and um, specifically muscle. And you see that sometimes in in female athletes who have been pregnant for, um, you know, pregnant, and then if they're yeah. able to maintain, if they're able to maintain their fitness throughout pregnancy, and then you know they have. The, you know, it's a sec that they go through, um, delivery and then, um, you know, sometimes six weeks after, uh, they're still, they, they run the fastest they've ever run. And I, I think what happens is that they have the vasculature and the blood volume, um, mm -hmm. necessary to basically build another body. And then they've spent all of that time, uh, yeah accumulating blood essentially and then that, that's um, interesting i mean i i was even on the couch weighing 200 pounds you know shifted to doing some vegetable like juicing for like pretty extensive 40 days straight of it and lost probably 50 pounds and then found myself with the ability to just go run like an, a real easy slow half marathon without really any effort it's almost that same concept i think I think that's really fascinating. So, yeah, and that's that's not something. I mean, just to clarify, that's not something I would ever, as a coach or you know, as a yeah, that's as not a, a healthy as a, uh... as, a, as, a, as, a <laughs> as a practitioner. That's not something that I would recommend that anybody ever try. It just happened it to. In way. retrospect, when I look back, I'm like, wow, that's interesting that that happened. the 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 thing that I should add is that after I ran that race, four weeks later, I I fractured my tibia. I had a I had a uh, a stress fracture that kind of went beyond a stress fracture and right. it took, it took me 18 months before I was able to run high volume again after that. So it was a bad enough fracture that it was, um, so that those extremes tell, are not, tell, are not tell me, uh, how, how were those months? Cause I mean, I'm middle of the pack and right now I don't have many toenails. So, uh, training yeah. is kind of on hold right now. Um, and it's killing me, so I can't imagine being on that level, having to take. You said eighteen months. It took about eighteen months until I was I was fully able to run. So um, how how much time know, I, off I've, your I've, off your feet, and how did you? I mean, more than anything, mentally, how did you yeah, hold was, that together? It was tough. It was um, that was what kind of pushed me into uh, pushed me into grad school. Um, I. You know, I thought after I ran, after I raced in Kona and I, I raced uh, that marathon, I was like, you know, I, I got back to work, you know, training again for, for long distance triathlon. And I, my hope was that, you know, I would, I would race again and, and be, get my license as a professional triathlete and then just continue. I mean, things were looking up for me and, yeah, for sure. um, and then I, I got that fracture and it, it was stupid. It was a stupid fracture. You know, it was, it was an overuse injury and, you know, overuse injuries are, um, it's learning to be able to differentiate 
between effort based pain and actually like um, structural type pain where you're actually, you know, damaging yourself and, um, you know, effort based pain is, uh, is badass, but injury based pain is, is dumbass. <laughs> you know? it's, it's, That's and, a great uh, quote right there. And, and I was, I was definitely in that dumbass realm. I, I thought, well, you know, this is, this is something that I can just push through and I can push through and I can push through. And, and it, it, I think I ran probably 1200 miles with pain in my tibia. And, and then one day it just, it just went. And, you know, when I went to get it checked out, it was like, okay, how did you do this? And it was like, well, just running. And it was like, well, this is beyond a stress fracture. Like, how did you, how did you just run, you know, to, to this tibial fracture? And, and, uh, and I, you know, I realized how that, that, you know, sometimes certain injuries that we have are, are more painful than, than bone injuries, you know, and, and just because you can push through it doesn't mean that you should push through it. And, um, and so that, um, I realized I, I was like, okay, I don't have a plan B. I don't want to be an anthropologist. I don't want to be an exercise physiologist. If I'm going to have a job that, you know, actually is a safety net for my growing family. We, we had two kids at the time. Um, now we have three. Um, I realized, okay, I got to go back to school um, and create this exit strategy, this safety net so that I can justify continuing to be an athlete. So I, I, I worked waiting tables with, you know, a boot up to my knee and, um, Jeez. and six nights a week. And, and then I, you know, I went back to school full time in this doctorate program and, uh, it was, it was maddening. It was a really hard time in my life. School wasn't as hard as, you know, the actual, um, curriculum wasn't as hard as actually being in school again, you know, the routine of being in school. And, um, was it, stress- I, I, it had to be stressful for you. I mean, I know, you know, we have one one child. We're working on uh, the second, and uh, the stress of of having to you know help support the family. I can't even imagine. I mean, was that almost like the the bottom for you? Like it was tough. Yeah, it was it was a really really dark dark time in my life. Um, yeah, and I a lot of it had to do with the fact that I wasn't. I wasn't able to run. So I, I realized that that had been my outlet for a long time. You know, I got yeah. into running because yeah. of the competitive aspects, but, but I, I hadn't even realized how, how much it had become a part of my ideology and my psyche and, you know, the way that I dealt with issues. And, um, and when that was taken away from me, it was, it was almost as if I, I lost, um, it's like running these long, long, slow distances in training. It opened up these different, you know, it gave me these different perspectives. It, it, it was, I guess, the most, it's been the most transcendental experience, or I guess it's, it's, um, it's enabled to me to have, to have the most transcendental experiences that, um, that I've ever had. Um, and it's given me the ability to look at, you know, obstacles, the type of obstacles that we all face, but you know, it, it's almost like you, you rise up above that obstacle and you're able to spin it around and see it from all different perspectives. And, um, you're able to see, okay, this is how I approach this now. And, and, uh, and it gave me, it's almost like you're, you're given these, these fleeting glimpses into, 
other realms and other dimensions and, and things just make sense. And, um, and I thought that's just the way that my mind worked. And then when I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't run anymore, uh, I realized that running was what, what gave me those perspectives. And, um, I think that part of the reason is because, um, you know, you study different religions and study different, I guess, religious texts. And there's, there's some commonalities that exist between lots of different religious ideologies and different philosophies. And, um, some of these commonalities are, you know, people will fast, so they'll go without food or water for, for days. Um, and there's a lot of these metaphors where, you know, the, the synagogue or the mosque or the temple or whatever it is, is, is compared to a mountain. And, you know, the top of the mountain is where the enlightenment comes in. Um, and I, in my experience, what I, what I've found is that I think that the reason that this happens is that there's this, there's this universal need, um, throughout all humanity and throughout all, you know, throughout time, um, where we have these, these universal needs as humans. And, and one of the ways that we're able to access clarity in transcendentalism is to, is to be by ourselves, um, engaged in some type of continuous physical activity which depletes our resources so much and when i say resources i mean food and water um to where we've burned through the noise that comes with being associated with a lot of people and also that comes from from food and um (laughs) i think that we can enter this state as runners or as endurance athletes where within a matter of hours we can deplete ourselves to where we're in the same physiological state as a monk who's been fasting for a week or two weeks or three weeks or um and and there's a clarity that comes with that and and we're able to have like i said it's this transcendental experience and and for me that happens when i'm by myself climbing a mountain and I'm three or four or five or six hours into it and I'm, I'm glycogen depleted I'm, and I'm dehydrated and I'm, I'm, I'm tired of listening to music and I haven't seen anybody for, you know, for hours. And, and there's this, there's this meditative trance that you just kind of fall into and you're able to see things from, from these different perspectives. And you and just, <laughs> you just perfectly described, okay, I've, I've only told this to like one person. I told this to Michelle Barton privately, but before I, I hit a really, really dark spot after getting injured, injuring my knee during my very first half marathon, coming back, running a trail 30 K some miraculous, way of of even finding the trails i didn't know what the word flow meant so i started training for ultra i use the word ultra to describe essentially that exact mental i i don't even you your words perfectly described it but essentially i found flow doing my my comeback 30k that kind of was the launch pad but that was actually why I named it Training for Ultra was because I was training my body to be able to, you know, reach that mental state um, that you just 
perfectly distra- described. I, that's amazing. I I really can um, relate to that experience that you have. Um, probably just in English, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah see, you know, the problem for me is that 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 experience, and and that's a. I feel like that's what that's what brings people back to endurance athletics. I I think it is a it's a universal need that we have, and we all have we all universally have access to that and it, and it it's somehow like i said it's associated with with movement and typically being alone and and for me it has to be um ease of movement i don't feel the same way when i'm when i'm training for a marathon on the road i mean that's that's brutal cutthroat just yeah. um it, it's agonizing and i um i don't experience that when i'm racing on the trails i i but i do experience it when i'm training by myself, uh, specifically for ultra distances. And I've experienced it at times when, when I've been on a bike, but it's, it's less, it's less common. And it's, it's not something, you know, people talk about having a runner's high or whatever. And I, I don't experience it that way. It's, it's, um, it's not a runner's high for me. Well, it's, it's a, yeah. And, and you can't force it. And it's, it's a lot, um, it's a lot less common than you'd like it to be. It, it just, it's you reach a point and and in my experience i fall into it rather than um i do too um rather than me being able to predict when it's going to come on and um it more than anything yeah it's a sense of of gratitude and 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 peace and contentment and perspective that allows me to realize that there are things bigger than than me and bigger than my problems and um it's interesting reading sorry go go ahead. ahead Well, reading these different, you know, you, you find pieces of it, traces of it in literature. And um, I think it was Henry Henry David Thoreau said, um, methinks that the moment my legs begin to move, my thoughts begin to flow. And so there's this connection that exists. And I, you know, I could nerd out on the, the, the neuroscience behind you know why that might be but but there's there's some type of connection that exists between between movement and the ability that our minds have to enter these different um yeah yeah i perspectives. think i think einstein was notorious for doing brisk walks and doing mind experiments on those walks and clearly that it worked out okay for him um yeah. but yeah that's that's funny i mean flow for me at least is the lack of thoughts like there's a fundamental understanding taking place and beauty and simplicity and clarity but it doesn't involve rapid thought for me it's it's sure. uh mostly like you kind of described visual and lack of thinking and it was really special uh at bandera 100k for me i i hit the state when i was actually run- running uphill which is like hitting flow for mid middle of the pack guy while running uphill was like wow like like i've i've kind of uh figured something out here so is yeah. that similar for you does your brain almost I, it's hard for me to describe but i'm not thinking rapidly like it's almost like my brain shuts off or goes into a totally different state absolutely yeah it's it's an ease it's an ease of 
it's an uh, it's an ease in my mind. It's it's an ease of thought. It's an ease of movement. And 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 then you know I I kind of fall into this state, but um, I don't find it if I'm. It's like there's a threshold of effort that yep. that my body self selects, and if if I push beyond that, um, there's too much going on. It's almost like I. I engage this sympathetic nervous system, this fight or flight type of nervous system, which makes makes the ability to fall into that state not possible. And so I I've found that um, I spend a lot of time now running in the Grand Canyon and in the mountain range that we have outside of Flagstaff. And then also, you know, I, my house is right up against the forest um, that goes between Flagstaff and, and Sedona. So there's not any houses for 30 miles and um i spent a lot of time out in in that wilderness and um you know people will ask i'll see people on the trails and and uh, a lot of times you want to acknowledge people and you want to um you want to make sure that you're cordial and that you have good trail etiquette and stuff like that but but most of the time i just i really just want to be by myself in my own thoughts and um a lot of times a common thing that people will say is, especially in the Grand Canyon, if you're running, you know, across the Canyon, um, or back and forth, um, people will say, Hey, how fast are you going? Or like, what's your time? Are you trying to break a record? And I, I almost, I almost am offended by it because I, um, I typically will go out there as the sun is going down and I'll run by myself through the night. Um, over to the north rim and then come back as the sun's coming up um back to the south rim and it's it's 10 or 12 or longer hours of just just time by myself in my own thoughts and and it's dark and you know the only the only company you have is are the eyes that your headlight reflects off of and you know you wonder what those eyes belong to but they don't ask you many questions (laughs) exactly but but um i've realized kind of in the different trail races that I've competed in and comparing those races to the different, you know, state of mind and emotional state that I enter when I'm training in, in mountains and and canyons and things like that is that there, there are some places where the, the, the beauty of these places, um, inherently makes them, makes them so seemingly so sacred that you don't want to associate that type of discomfort with these these sacred places and um so i'll never i will never attempt an fkt in a place that um that's that's special to me that's sacred to me because i i I wouldn't ever want to um associate that kind of place with with that type of discomfort and and i i I know that that that's not the case for everybody i know that sometimes there is clarity in that suffering and i know that sometimes there is you know, this, um, kind of this, this breaking through this, this, um, breaking through these thresholds that are associated with, with discomfort. But for me, it's, um, it's more of, like I said, a state that I fall in, um, um, because of the ease of movement and the ease Absolutely. of my thoughts rather, rather than the opposite. So I, I don't know if Do that you- makes sense, but that's, I don't I don't feel myself running when I hit that state like I don't feel my physical body um, movements at all actually yeah is that similar for you yeah um, yeah sometimes sometimes there's 
um yeah yeah it's it's different um that that and i guess getting back to it now that i think of it that there have been times when i've been racing and i have i have had these these moments of clarity um that have been associated with with pain um but but it is a very different experience and and sometimes um i guess the different feelings as i'm running and and it's it's ease that brings me into this state. The overwhelming feeling is love and gratitude. Um, and sometimes when, when I'm, I'm pushing really hard through, you know, deep levels of different realms of pain. Um, it's almost like it's in response to different frustrations and stresses and, and almost rage that comes out. Um, and, and typically that has been in times when I've, I've been coming back from not being able to, to run for long periods of time. And, and all of this, I sounds hyperbolic to call it trauma, but this trauma has built up, um, and it somehow needs to find its way out. And, um, and that's kind of what comes out when I'm racing. But, but typically when I'm, when I'm training, the overwhelming feeling is, is love and gratitude and positivity. And that's amazing. Um, anyway, it's, it's interesting, but is there's just um, not many people you can explore this concept with, um, just because, I mean, marathon training. May, there are probably a lot of marathoners that can hit that, but I think it becomes especially um, common within ultra runners. But for you to be totally. able to, you know, paint that picture for us, like I just I really appreciate it. It's a concept I've been wanting to to devote almost a whole episode on before. And, um, I'm just glad we got to explore that. So, um, just shifting gears coming out of flow here. Um, (laughs) uh, you know, tell me about, uh, I was interested to hear kind of how you went into run rabbit run. It was 2016. Oh, right. And then I want to hear about Boston and then I have some random questions for you. Sure. Um, let's see. Run rabbit. That happened. How did that happen? You know what it was? I, I saw, um, so living in Flagstaff and there's a lot of different, you know, pedigrees and, and history and traditions within this, this town. So you've got the, the road runners and, you know, there was McMillan elite and team run Flagstaff and then team run Flagstaff pro. And then Ben Rosario with, um, with Northern Arizona elite and, and, you know, the different teams that have come and gone during that time. And then on the other side, you've got the ultra runners and, and, and some of these ultra runners that, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know some of these guys, but, um, but Ian Torrance, I mean, he's the original, he's one of the original, just badasses. And he's, you know, he's established this just tradition of ultra running in the, in the town. And, um, I, I got to know him, it was embarrassing because a lot of it was before I even knew his history as an athlete. And he's, he's always been one of those genuine, just sincere, um, people. One of the first people I actually met when I moved here and he, and he, he really, um, he welcomed me in a way that he had no need to, there, there was nothing that he was, there's no way to capitalize on being associated with me. There, there, I mean, there was, I, I didn't have, um, I didn't carry any weight in terms of um, <laughs> climbing any 
any any ladders, if that makes sense. And so um, I was anyway was really impressed by by how genuine and kind that he he was, and 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 then other people in the community, um, Brian Tinder and and you know Rob Carr and Rob Rob, you know, with what he did and you know what he continues to do, just pushing these limits and exploring these almost these dimensions of what we're capable of um physically and emotionally and mentally i i'm i'm so fascinated and so inspired by by what he's done and and his willingness to open up and articulate um some of the the darker sides that i think are really universal among among endurance athletes and that's just knowing that that other people um live in those realms is is comforting just in the in the company that is inherent with that and so um rob did some amazing things and you know he he will continue to do amazing things but um with western states and um and kind of seeing the way the community rallied around him and then and then you know randomly and i i don't mean this in any any um disparaging way but randomly when andrew miller won western states a couple of years ago um this kid from flagstaff that not a lot of people even knew in flagstaff he was a student and he you know looked like he just worked hard and kept his head down and and did a lot of training on his own um you know people people knew him and saw him and stuff like that but you know when he won western states i think it surprised kind of everybody he was this really nice guy that just worked hard and ran a smart race on a day that a lot of people just kind of blew themselves up and um when i you know when i saw that i was inspired because it was like okay even even when somebody that's off the radar from flagstaff goes and and wins western states um it kind of shows the depth where, you know, the favorite is from Flagstaff and then, um, you know, that doesn't end up happening and, and, uh, and that whole race gets kind of torn open. And then, you know, this guy from Flagstaff that nobody was expecting to win comes and wins Western States that, that inspired me so much. I remember sitting there watching the race, you know, basically through, through, um, a phone and a computer. And, um, I, I had this, uh, it was just, I guess this thought, and it wasn't, it wasn't my thought. It wasn't my, um, it's not like I came up with this idea, but I was so impressed by the, the notion of, okay, well, what if, what if everybody in Flagstaff rallies behind these ultra runners and, and, and if the goal becomes to, you know, to keep Western States, um, as something that, that belongs to Flagstaff. That's the tradition that it doesn't matter what brand they're sponsored by. And it doesn't matter, you know, what background they come from. The goal as a community should be to make sure that somebody from West, somebody from Flagstaff wins Western States every year. And, and this notion of keeping the Cougar in Flagstaff, you know, the Cougar is the trophy that you win at Western States. And, and I remember being so impressed by that idea. And I don't remember what, what spurred it. I don't know if somebody said something on Twitter uh, that could have been the case. Somebody might've said that. And, and I, I really was impressed by that. And I thought, man, I'd really love to be a part of that. And, and so I got this wild idea. Okay, well, how do I, well, it's not a wild idea to most of the people that are listening, but it was a wild idea for me because I was so, I was so focused on the road and I was so focused on trying to run a fast marathon. I, I thought, well, I would love to be at Western States the following year. And so I decided to run 
run rabbit run the hunter miler and it really was a just an impulsive um move not an impulsive move in terms of like jumping into the race but an, an impulsive change in my training and everything and so i spent that summer um i trained really really hard that summer and my training i i probably not probably i i got up to around 140 miles a week for probably 10 weeks and wow um the way that you're you're in rare rare uh, form there there's not many people in the world that put in that kind of mileage um i probably had i think six weeks where what i did was uh i would run 30 miles back to back to back so i would put 90 miles in three days it would be a friday saturday sunday and it was the same it was the same run i'd climb up over our mountain and then back down the other side and flip around and then come back up the mountain again and then back down and it was it was about 30 miles and it would take it was slow though i mean i would do it over maybe six and a half hours and i was trying to train my body um to know what it felt like to and to become efficient, you know, metabolically and, um, neuromuscularly, um, while I was in this, you know, this depleted state day to day to day. And, uh, and I got really fit and, and I, (laughs) it, it was during that training cycle that I explored these, these realms that I, that I hadn't yet explored. And I, I, you know, that I was given access to, you know, these, deeper thoughts and different perspectives that I, that I hadn't experienced with, with marathon road training. And, um, it's really what made me, it wasn't like I fell in love with it. It was like, I became dependent upon that type of training because it gave me almost like it gave me access to myself, um, in a way that I'd never experienced before. And so, um, I'd come home from these training runs and I, you know, I'd see my wife, Steph, and she would, she'd say, Hey, how'd it go? And I, I would, um, I would try to, I would try to give some short answer. Um, but I would get emotional almost every single day. I, I, because of the things that I, because of the things that I'd experienced, I, I, I'd try to, she'd say, are you okay? And I'd say, yeah, but she'd say, so what do you, what happened out there? And I, I would say, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but, but it was transformative more than, more than anything. Um, I've ever experienced before since. And, um, and, uh, and I don't know if it was, if that training block, um, served as a chance for me to deal with issues, unresolved issues that I, that I'd suppressed for a long period of time, you know, decades, or if it was, if it was, I was, um, exploring these new, uh, I guess new, I don't know how to describe it in other, any other word than realm. I, I feel like it surpasses um, linguistics to be able to just describe this. But it, but um, but you all know what I mean. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, training was going well. I'm sorry. Um, training was going really well. And about two weeks out from Run Rabbit, it was about uh, it was the very last long run that I was doing, and I was just just burning the downhill back towards my car trying to get my legs durable for the for the ups and downs of of the of run rabbit course and and i as always happens i you know 
there was probably one rock in the trail and I just happened to step on it. And so, um, I had a really bad ankle sprain. Um, it was, it caused an avulsion fracture, which is where the, the ligament tears, but it tears a piece of bone off with it when it tears. And, um, this, the smart thing would have been to, to not race, but I, I did anyway. And, um, it, it was it was an interesting experience in and of itself. I've never actually, I haven't even talked about that experience yet because it was so difficult for me to wrap my head around. Um, I I thought that I could win it. Um, Sage Canada was going to be there, and Jeff Browning and Alex Nichols, and you know a bunch of other fast guys. But I thought you know on the right day, I thought that I could win, and. Um, and it was wild. It was really, really wild. It was, I broke the race up into, I thought, okay, this is probably going to take about 18 hours. And, and so I broke the race up into different six hour blocks in my mind. Um, for me, distance is, distance is hard to wrap my head around, but time, time is something that I felt like I could play with. I feel like time is something that, that I, I can, I can distort and I can, you know, you can, you can flip, you can flip it back on itself and, you know, you can, you can speed it up and slow it down and, and zone out in a way that, that is difficult for me to do if I'm focusing on distance. And so, so time is, is kind of, is the way that I chose to approach it. So, you know, three, six hour blocks and using the first two, six hour blocks to prepare myself through nutrition and hydration so that I could have a successful third hour a third six hour block. And I got into that third six hour block and I think it was around, I don't remember the different aid stations and stuff, but it was, it was around 70 miles or, um, 70 miles or so. And, um, I, I caught up to, well, I guess it was around mile 50. I caught up to Sage and Sage wasn't doing very well. And, and I moved into second place and Alex was up front and, um, I got to an aid station and decided to change my shoes and I went to go take my gloves off and it was a bunch of really stupid mistakes that most anybody that's done multiple ultras would, would know. But I, that really was only the second ultra that I'd ever done. I, I had run 50 miles one time at North face and then I just decided to do this, this hundred miler. And I always get thrown into the ultra runner crowd because I have a beard and live in Flagstaff, but I really am kind of <laughs> new to it. So, so, so was um, this the aid station, um, you know, down by the, the Creek, like the lowest uh, point on the course almost. No, it was right before that. So okay, it was I right remember exactly that. where and that is. Yeah. Yeah. What happened is I stopped and I had a drop bag and everybody told me you need to, you need to put a jacket on, you need to change your shoes. You need to get warm because it's going to get really, really cold. And I was still in just a Jersey. I had gloves on, but like I, it was, I think 20 degrees out and I, I basically was in a crop top, you know, and I felt yeah. I felt fine. And that was one thing that I remember that the, the only conversation Sage and I had was, um, I said, Hey, come on, man. And he goes, no, 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 I'm done. And I, I, I said, no, no, you're, you're great. Let's go together. And he goes, how are you not cold? And I, I remember thinking, well, I'm just, I'm just not, but, um, he was freezing. I think he was, he was pretty hypothermic at the time. And, um, and that was, <laughs> oh, gosh, along with that, a lot of people. Different. Yeah. Right. Totally. And that's, that's the first time that Sage and I had raced since, um, since we were 16 and 17 at the Oregon state cross country championships. But, um, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, 
I, I kept moving and I stopped to take my, I stopped to change my shoes and I took, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't untie the knots. The knots had been, um, I tied the knots before the race and I thought I could just slip my shoes on and, and somehow the, the shoes had gotten, um, pulled really tight. I don't know if it was the person that was carrying the drop bag, but the, the shoes got pulled really, really tight. And so I was trying to get the shoes on, but they were too tight. And so I was trying to untie the knots and, and I couldn't untie the knots. So I took my gloves off and then my hands froze up and I couldn't untie the knots. And then, and then I got the shoes on, but my hands were so cold, I couldn't retie the knots. And I, I didn't know that you can ask people for help and stuff like that. And so somebody came up to me and handed me a bowl of soup and I, I, I started eating that and I got so distracted during all of that. And, um, my mind was starting to go and, I, it took probably 20 minutes to get my shoes on and to get going again. And during that time, Jeff Browning had passed and a couple of other guys had passed. And I think I ended up in about sixth place. Um, and I got down to that aid station down, down below the really warm one that everybody tells you not to go into because you won't come back out of it. And, um, and Jeff had about a 20 minute lead on me at the time. Um, and I worked really hard coming back up that hill and I got to where I was about, um, people said I was 30 seconds behind Jeff. And so I, I'd bridged that gap pretty good. I think we were around mile 80, that, that, 80 at the time. That hill is uh, about, uh, I would say 6,000 feet of gain. Like yeah, that hit, it was a, it was a big climb. That, yeah. That broke me during my race. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you just say there, there's that hill. I mean, that was, that was a hill. <laughs> Yeah, it was a long hill and it, and it's dark and cold and you're by yourself. And I, I pushed really hard though. And I started to feel good. And it was the first time that I had any caffeine the entire day. And, and so I started to feel, you know, I started to feel good. And, um, and you go through these cycles, you know, the, the pain that you experience in, in, in an ultra marathon, it, it's not linear type pain. It doesn't get worse and worse and worse and worse. Right. And, um, it's, it's cyclical, you know, you, you go through this really dark phase and then you come out of it and then you experience this really, uh, effortless phase and, and then the pain comes back and it just circles and circles and circles. And, and so it's remembering, you know, th things are going to hurt, um, uh, really bad and then things are going to feel good and, and, and keeping the perspective that when things start to feel good, remembering that it's going to start to hurt again. But, yeah. but during that dark time, remembering that it's going to start to feel good again. And you just go through this cycle and, you know, you make the same decision over and over and over hundreds of times to just keep going. And, um, anyway, I, I, I started catching back up to Jeff and, and, uh, back to that same aid station where, um, uh, you know, a previous aid station you come back on and, and I, I missed the turn and I, I went off a different direction and, um, I stopped and I'm looking at a map with my, you know, with my headlamp and trying to figure out which direction is North and South and oh, East and West, but I, you but I can't right. see this. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And I, I couldn't, you know, the sun wasn't there and I didn't know those mountains and I couldn't see the stars. And so I had no idea how to direct myself. And so I, I came back and I, I jumped on a trail that I thought was the right trail and I hoped it was, but it was, it was so late in the night and I, I was so depleted in terms of calories and it was getting so cold that I didn't have a lot of confidence. I knew that, I knew that if I, if I dropped down the backside of that mountain and it was the wrong trail yeah. that by the time, by the time I figured things out, um, I knew I wouldn't, I knew I wouldn't survive the night. I know that sounds kind of, uh, you know, like I'm, 
it sounds a little bit extreme, but I, I knew that in that state, if I went 10 miles down off the wrong side, it was, it was so cold that I knew that I would, I'd freeze to death before somebody found me. And so I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't super confident that was the right trail. So I, I slowed things down until somebody else caught me and, um, and I, you know, I knew we were on the right trail and, and then things just got funky. Um, over the next, there was probably 15 miles from there to the finish line. Um, I started to roll again, you know, I started moving really well and I was confident that I was moving in the right direction and, and I started passing people and I'd turn, you know, and I'd, I'd talk to them and I'd say, you know, uh, you know, good job. And, and each one of them said the same thing, like, Hey, good work, you know, keep going. Uh, and I remember catching Jeff and I turned and I said, you know, I felt this camaraderie because we both race for, for ultra and I said, Hey, great job, Jeff. And he said, he said, yeah, good work, man. And I said, Hey, let's go together. And he said, he said to me, he said, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of struggling, but go ahead, you know, keep, you keep pushing forward. And I remember coming through one of the aid stations and I talked to one of the volunteers there and they said, you're in second place. You're, you know, just a few minutes behind Alex. And I got to the, the very last aid station. There were maybe four miles left. Oh gosh. And they said this they said the same thing. They said, you're right behind Alex. And I remember screaming down that mountain, you know, it's, it's basically just straight downhill. Yeah. 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 Just running as hard as I could. And, and I don't know what it was, what, but I remember just tears just streaming down my face thinking, you know, I've, I, I was born for this. I finally found, you know, my niche and I got to the finish line and I crossed and they said, I haven't told anybody this. They said, congratulations, sixth place. And I said, what? And they said, you finished sixth. And I said, uh, how? I, 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 they said I was in second. How, how did I finish sixth? <laughs> and I don't remember who it was, but they just very matter-of-factly said, well, you finished sixth place because five people finished in front of you. <laughs> and I said, well, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I, I, I was in second place. I've been in second place for 20 miles. And, and they said, no, you finished sixth. And I said, well, did I take a wrong turn? And they said, no, I mean, you, you went to all the checkpoints, right? And I was like, yeah. And, and I said, well, I, um, I said, who finished ahead of me? And, and, you know, they, they started to mention the names and they said, you know, Jeff, Jeff finished, um, you know, they mentioned Jeff's name and I was like, no, I passed Jeff like two hours ago. And I, I talked to him, we had a conversation and, and, uh, and they said, no, Jeff, Jeff finished 20 minutes ago and and I, I I realized I was like I had completely hallucinated the previous wow. you know th- four hours and and none of that had actually happened even though it was so clear in my mind that it had you know and it, people had talked about like having hallucinations where they'd said you know they see things and and I always imagined it would look like um Oh, you know that scene in in Dumbo where they drink the, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 they drink the alcohol and they, you know, they're everything's dancing and there's these floating elephants and these, these psychedelic um, colors and stuff like that. Or I, I was I was assumed it would look like that, you know, that you would realize that you were kind of out of your, out of your own, um, mind and, and and for me it was so real that even today if if you told me hey this was, <laughs> everybody was just you know. Um, playing this big joke on you and you actually did come in second place i i would i would believe you you know because it was so it was so real um 
That's crazy. You know, the, I mean, Court, that I had in- Courtney, Courtney to Walter, you know, she's, she's talked about how she's seen, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember cheetahs and hammocks and that kind of stuff or like jazz players and yeah. like during Moab, but to, to actually see your competition and speak with them as a hallucinations that's out of this world. So yeah, it was weird. It was weird. Anyway, yeah, I I didn't I haven't ever really told anybody about that experience, and I never wrote about it. Typically, I'll write about you know my race experiences exhaustively, way more than anybody wants to read. But it was it was one of those things that I still hadn't wrapped my own head around it, and so I I never even I never even figured out a way to to try to articulate it because I I don't know what happened out there. But um, the goal of that entire race was to be able to race Western states, you know, the next year, and to be able to join this kind of coalition of of runners from Flagstaff, um, independent of brand and sponsors to kind of support each other and to figure out a way to keep the Cougar in Flagstaff and, um, ultra my, my running shoe, um, sponsor, you know, I've been with them some from the very beginning. Um, they were, they were the sponsor of the event. And so they had a spot and they said, they said, Hey, we've got a, we've got a spot, uh, if you'd like to race at Western. And, and this was a couple of months afterwards and my body had hurt so bad after running that hundred mile race, like my joints and my, you know, my feet, everything just kind of ached for a really, really long time. So much so that when they, they gave me that, you know, they gave me the opportunity. And, and part of it was the fact that I, I felt like that, that would be kind of a, I don't know. Not a, not a legitimate way to make it into the race. I wanted to actually earn my earn a spot into there, um, but I said I said no, <laughs> mostly because I was like, oh, I don't know if I ever want to run 100 miles again. <laughs> and uh, and and a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was so jaded from that that experience where I I thought. I went from thinking I was born for this. This is my niche to like, how, how did those last four hours just play out? Um, and, and I, you know, I have no idea what just happened and what I experienced it. And I can't even trust my own thoughts, you know? And so they gave me the option. Basically they said, do you want to run Western or do you want to run Boston? And I was like, Oh man, give me Boston. I'll totally race Boston. Interesting. Okay. I was wondering, uh, I was wondering why you, uh, decided to go for that race. Yeah. So, um, in, in regards to, to training into Boston, I mean, was it similar or, or were you doing, uh, I'm assuming more speed work, you know, totally different, um, miles, probably more on the road and trying to harden up joints and ligaments for a, a road marathon. Right. Sure. It was very, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was similar in terms of volume, but, but the structure was a little bit different. I, I was, you know, school started again. So I was, I was going to school this, this doctorate program that I, that I needed to get finished. And it was, I, I specifically, well, we bought a house right before I started school and, and it was very, um, intentional, like the, the place that I bought the house and it was by trail about 12 miles, um, to school each way. And so I, I I basically, my, my training consisted of walking or running, run commuting back and forth to school every day. So it was again, really high, high mileage, um, about, you know, 140 miles a week of, of run commuting. And, 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 you know, the thing is, is that wasn't always, it wasn't always running. I, I spent a lot of those days where I needed time to study. And so I, 
I was reading pages that I'd ripped out of textbooks and, and I would take six hours to cover that, you know, 20 miles, 24 miles, um, just walking both ways. Because then when I got home, I was done and I could be a dad and a husband and things like that. And, um, I didn't have to be burdened with, with trying to, to focus on that. So, so how long it took for me to run those, you know, 20 ish miles, depending on where my classes were located on the university, um, was dictated by how much time I needed to study the material for the day. So, so some days I was late and I would, you know, I'd cover that distance at at maybe six minute mile pace. And other days I was tired and had run out of calories and it was snowing and, you know, my headlamp battery had died and I'm, I'm trying to find my way through the forest, um, with, you know, just a sliver of a moon and, and it would take, you know, three or four hours one way. So, the the thing that I realized was that just being consistent with covering the distance was less important than being v- incredibly rigid with making sure I got perfect training in all the time. And and what happened in the meantime is um, I was selected to race for the U.S. at the World Championships, um, the 50K World Championships in in um, Qatar or Qatar or I don't know how we pronounce it in English. It, doesn't seem to be that there's a real good translation for it, but um, Qatar, I think is how they say it. But anyway, so over there, um, and I think honestly, the way that it happened is they needed a fifth or sixth guy, and they somebody must have thrown my name in the mix and said, "Well, this this guy's usually down for whatever, you know, maybe contact him." And, <laughs> and so somebody contacted me from the from the USATF and asked if I'd be willing to race for. Team USA at the World Championships, and, I, and I, so of course I said yes, and I went over and I raced that, and that was about six weeks after having raced Run Rabbit, so my body was still pretty beat up, and uh-huh. running on those on those tiles, you know, the marble tiles that the, that the entire city is um, paved in, was was hard. It beat me up pretty bad, and uh, I had an okay race. I I I I don't remember where I finished exactly, maybe twelfth or thirteenth, um, and then. Oh, another fast forward another four weeks and I found myself out in Hawaii and I raced the Honolulu marathon mostly just because, um, just because it's just kind of a fun race that I like doing. And I think I ended up running, my goal was to run five thirty miles for 20 miles and or five twenty miles. I don't remember. And there was this group of five Japanese runners that, uh, Japanese men that were that just happened to be running the same pace so I just kind of hooked onto that train and ran with those guys and you know ended up I think I had my my endurance was better because of the longer distances I'd done and I ended up dropping all those guys and um I ended up finishing fifth or sixth I think and wow and I think I ran 220 222 or 223 maybe 224 I don't remember exactly but it was it was um it was a step in the right direction again because it was it was the fastest I'd run in a really long time and it was after having raced 100 miles and I I had this idea that once you once you go long you can't really go back to these shorter distances and and I realized it was like well maybe I can maybe I can take a crack at the marathon again and and try and run faster you know than I have and so an, a, a month later I ran another marathon and it was a it was a two nineteen down in Phoenix. And, um, and then a month after that, I ran another marathon and it was a two eighteen. And then, um, 
it was about six weeks after that that Boston popped up. And so I, I really had just kind of, I kept my I kept stuff really simple. I would do I would do track workouts on Tuesday nights with Team Run Flagstaff, that community track run. I would do long runs on Sunday mornings with with that group that does long runs in Flagstaff, and and those are typically progressive, kind of cut down type long runs, so 20 to 22 miles that that finish at close to marathon pace. And then I would do this run walk commute back and forth to school and just make sure I was meticulous about doing strides every day strides and drills every single day after these runs and then basically race every you know four weeks or so and and the 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 time that I was running those marathons in just gradually got faster and faster and faster and I wasn't putting in much extra effort it just happened to be that I was getting fitter and fitter and um Boston was a you know, it was a special day. I, I went in and it, I knew it was going to be hot. Um, because I'm kind of a bigger build, I, I knew I would potentially struggle with that. Um, it's harder to, you know, keep your body cool. If you're, you know, the more cells that you have, the more, <laughs> the more those cells are generating, um, yeah. energy and, you know, it, you basically are creating heat and, um, you reach these thresholds and it becomes difficult to keep your body temperature low enough. And, and once you exceed those thresholds, it doesn't matter what your effort is. Your body just kind of shuts down. So um, the goal was to try and keep myself as cool as possible. And I remember in, you know, before the race, the mindset was, okay, put yourself back in Kona when you race the Ironman. And that's always the goal in Kona is just to stay as cool as possible. So um, I went out without, you know, really any expectations. And um, the first six miles were tough. I I didn't feel good at all. I felt really heavy and um, like I was having a hard time getting into a rhythm. And uh, I was running with my brother Jake at the time and um, Jorge Maravilla and Michael Wardian and um, and Jake were all all there. And so um, it's cool to have some some other you know familiar ultra runners in the scene. And uh, then things just kind of started to flow around mile maybe mile 15 or 16 I I really had to grind through about 10 miles where it didn't feel good at all and then mile 15 or 16 started to happen or started to feel good and um and you know I came through Heartbreak Hill and and didn't even realize that that's what that was and um kind of just running (laughs) off of the after run rabbit run it's like uh (laughs) yeah it's a flat section Yeah, I mean, really though, I felt like I gained a lot of strength aerobically from from doing those longer races, and um, and it really was just kind of getting caught up in the energy um, of of the crowds. I mean, there were so many people, and and there was just such a positive. There's such this you know this spirit of just being just hard and tough and gritty, you know, in Boston in general, and 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 that there's this reciprocal relationship that, that takes place between the runners and the athletes. And, um, you know, they're pouring out all of this love and all this energy and, and it fuels you as an athlete and, and, and you can't help but radiate that back. And, and that just fuels it even more. And so it just becomes this exponential, just, um, just, it really is almost like it's the only real, true form of sustainable energy is that sense of gratitude and love. And if you can harness that, you know, if you can capture that when you're in the throes of this deep agony, you know, 
you really there really is no limit to um the ability that you have as as a runner in in that scenario it's um i feel like it's something that you see it's this commonality that you see with these great athletes um chrissy wellington and you know who was incredible at, at ironman um Ayla Gibber Selassie, who, you know, he broke all the records and on the track and, and then on the road. And, um, these people that they radiate this, this love and this positivity and, and people think that, that that's going to, in some, that's going to somehow, you know, take away from energy when in reality it, it seems to actually just fuel you even more. So I, I got really caught up in that and, um, I was trying to stay focused and trying to keep my head down and, and, and look down the road and stay efficient. But, you know, you got these little hands <laughs> that, that belong to, you know, four and five year old little kids. And, and I've got little, you know, I've got three little girls and, um, man, you know, you can't deny them a, a high five when you're going by. And, and so, um, trying to do that and stay as efficient as possible, but, but just being fueled by all of that. And then, you know, passing, um, sounds this may sound odd, but passing police officers and passing servicemen, military servicemen and passing, uh, you know, people, survivors of the Boston attacks and, um, being really moved by that. And, um, it's interesting because I, my wife, she, like I said, she studied conflict journalism and, and both of us studied conflict resolution. And I've spent time in places like Rio and Palestine and, places that really are war zones and um you know in terms of ideology i'm really anti-war as i think a lot of people would be but but kind of realizing that you can be anti-war but that doesn't make you anti-military you know and it doesn't mean that that your fight is against the servicemen and and the people that are out there and um you know putting their life on the line. And so having a respect and a, and a gratitude and honoring and saluting these, these men and women in uniform, um, is not, um, there's no conflict with, with having, you know, that respect and that gratitude and also, you know, just abhorring the notion of, of war. And, um, and anyway, so seeing those people, the, the, the servicemen and women and, and the police officers, you know, some of whom I think, oh, I know had, had been there for the attacks that took place in Boston and, and seeing people out on the course that, you know, that they had been there, um, during the attacks and they, they came out again and, and seeing people that had actually, you know, lost limbs and people who'd lost lives, you know, people who'd lost loved ones. Um, man, I was so moved by that. And just throughout the race, I, I just had these images playing through my head. Um, I remember, I remember seeing, uh, you know, play out in my mind, um, Shalane Flanagan the year after the attacks, you know, her going out and trying so hard to, to try and capture victory for, for the U S and mm -hmm. leading that entire race. And then, you know, kind of getting passed in the last few miles by some of the other women. But, um, but just seeing how gritty and, you know, tough she was and, and having that play out in my mind. And then, um, you know, seeing Ryan Hall and Nick Arseniaga, both guys that, you know, had lived and trained in Flagstaff, um, 
they had become part of this, you know, coalition during the year after the attacks to to try to make sure that an American won Boston and and uh, you know when Meb made a break early on in that race, um, there was this this communication that went through that that chase pack that if the East Africans were going to chase down Meb, they were going to have to do it on their own. Um, and so they held back and basically put, you know, their own races on the line. Uh, I think Craig Leon was in that group also. And, uh, you know, kind of sacrificed their performance for the day to kind of hold these big guns back. And, and Meb was able to, to sneak away. And, um, and by the time, you know, some of these other runners realized what was going on it was it was too late and so that you know he'd secure victory for the u.s and just kind of knowing that knowing that backstory and and seeing that all play out all of that culminated to create this this experience that was incredibly moving and um anyway i ended up running the the fastest i'd ever run you know up to that point um and it honestly was just pure joy over the last you know the second half of it and um yeah i i i hope i hope someday i'm i'm able to run that time you know with that kind of effort again i i don't know if it'll happen but um but i i'd like to you know think so i i mean it's almost irrelevant but how how fast did you run oh it was 218 something i don't remember the exact um seconds but it was about the same time as the the previous, you know, the race a month before that. But I, yeah. Anyway, two eighteen something. But man, you um, super fast. And so, <laughs> I mean, looking forward, um, what what ultras do you have in your future here? Are you still uh, trying to get to Western states? Also, I would, or? I would I would love to get to Western. There's you know there's this group of um, of ultra runners here in Flagstaff, just these these young guns that um, it started out with um, Jim Walmsley and Cody Reed and Tim Frericks. Um, they created this group called the Coconino Cowboys. Coconino is the county that we live in, and you know cowboys just because they're gritty, just hard hard workers. Um, but they created this this little group and. Um, they train together and Jared Hazen is a part of that. And Eric Sensman is a part of that. And, you know, they claim, they claim anybody that, that kind of has that same ideology and mindset. They, they claim Ian Torrance as the, as the OG, the original Cowboys. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, that's a group that, um, I had a chance to go out, you know, to Western last year with that group, uh, to try to, you know, crew and pace Jim over, you know, over that race. And, um, we were waiting for him at mile 78 at the river, um, to pace him in. And he ended up, uh, you know, kind of coming to a stop around mile 77. So, yeah. um, I, I'll be, I'll be out there, you know, I'll be, I'll be a part of that crew trying to, you know, hoping to make sure that somebody from Flagstaff brings a cougar back. But, um, but I, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to, to race this year. I, I haven't really been incredibly, uh, uh, open about this, but I, I fractured my, my sacrum in, let's see, at the end of last summer. And so actually it was a pretty a bad fracture. I, I've only run two times since then actually. So, um, I'm kind of, kind of on the mend, but, um, the last several months have been, have been kind of a struggle. So I've been able to, to get back to, 
cycling and swimming and um, I'm finding myself kind of accidentally getting in really good cycling and swimming shape as a result of you've been you've been through injury. this you've been through this <laughs> yeah. before you can it's, you can get through this yeah so you'll not come back even road. stronger I, it's uh it's definitely not my first rodeo but um yeah so I'm I'm kind of starting back at square one and it's it's uh you know it's been somewhat auspicious that it's uh it's allowed me to kind of realign my perspectives again and it's allowed me a chance to establish and regain some just general athleticism that that sometimes you lose when you focus too much on putting in volume and um so it's been good you know i've been able to work through some other kinks and injuries that i've that i've struggled with but it's it's been tough it's it's been dark um i'm looking forward to (laughs) to getting back to those those realms that i described earlier (laughs) well um I'm definitely rooting for you, and uh, I, I know you'll be back soon, so don't rush it. There's so many, there's so many different topics we could talk about. I mean, I skipped over um, you helping the Iron Cowboy, and you know a bunch of other things. But um, unfortunately, like I just have to shift gears. We'll have to have you back on the show again soon. Um, so I'm sorry. I, I asked. Tangent. No, no, this has been one of the more interesting conversations I've had. Um, really, I've enjoyed it a lot. So I asked this very, this is a very deep question. Some people like it, some people don't. Do you wear toe socks or no toe socks? Ooh, um, you know, I've never actually tried toe socks. I, I, uh, I'm kind of a creature of habit, and I've, I've been with Swiftwick socks for several years, and they've always worked really great for me, so I've... I've uh I've never actually tried toe socks, but um yeah I'm a Swiftwick guy through and through so and they seem to be working um and then yeah. what what type yeah. of shoe do you wear? I run in ultra footwear so um, ultra running um just and, a quick aside side note uh, the founder of Ultra Golden Harper he and I were roommates in college and oh, no we kidding. actually were in a band together and um, ran together on uh, on the same cross country team so yeah I've been in ultra from kind of from the very beginning yeah literally like yeah <laughs> that's yeah, amazing yeah. i've i've contacted him i'm gonna have him um on the show at some point here soon um, he's a good guy yeah seems very cool uh and then what what model do you wear oh you know after that that fracture i had in my tibia i, I started running in kind of the more um higher cushion stuff because i yeah. I read some articles that it it took some it took some of the stress off of your lower leg and kind of shifted it up into your into your hips and and glutes and um, so I use those but I I you know those were the Olympus and then also the Paragon I I think it's called oh I'm sorry the Paradigm there's a gym in Flagstaff called Paragon the Paradigm um, and then they've just last year they came out with a, a model called the Timp it's short for Mount Timpanogos which is a mountain in Utah. Uh, and I really like that. It's kind of a, um, it's like the Olympus, but it has a little bit lower stack height and pretty aggressive tread. I, Is that I really with the, like that. the Velcro across the top? No, that's I'm the, remember. the, I think the King MT is what they call that. And I, I actually okay. haven't tried okay. that you out, but like I said, I'm kind of a creature of habit. I find something that works and then I just, yeah, the temp, okay. That's printed it. on the sole of the bottom. Okay. I'm trying to just recall. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've tried the, uh, the Lone, Lone Peak. Twos, threes, three and a halfs. They've been pretty, yeah. pretty good to me. That's a great shoe, yeah. 
So in terms of other type of gear, do you like to, I don't think I've ever seen a picture really of you with a vest on, but handhelds mostly, or do you wear a vest? You know, it keeps, it comes back to the fact that I'm really not an ultra dude. <laughs> yeah. Know, like, yeah. I, I haven't run very many ultra marathons, but I, I wear, um, I wear Nathan, um, packs and I, I use the Krar, uh, the vapor Krar, um, when I'm doing faster stuff, there's a, there's a pack that Nathan makes called the journey pack. I think they make it, um, mm-hmm. still, but it's a larger pack. And I used to use that to run commute and, uh, that goes back to, well, no, I won't get off of that tangent, but the, um, I, uh, yeah, I carry a laptop and books and food and everything in that. And, you know, I would run commute in that and it was comfortable enough to run in. And, um, I think it was called the journey pack, but yeah, I, I'm a, I'm definitely a pack guy. Cool. Um, and then in terms of, um, hats and sunglasses and do you wear a watch? Do you have do you, to track your mileage? Do you use a GPS watch? Yeah. I use a watch. I'm just a stopwatch. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of minimalist in that sense. I, um, I've never got into GPS. I, I don't really use Strava, um, mostly because it makes me want to train harder than I, than I probably should. Um, so I, yeah, just a typical stopwatch. I'm just a regular old Timex guy. I'm definitely open to the, to the possibility of, of, you know, other options, but I've never, yeah, I've never really explored that, but and then, pretty simple. Uh, sunglasses and hats, and I'm trying to think yeah, of so any sun- other gear that you might use. Yeah, sunglasses. I I I've used um, Electric brand, which they're more like a, a skate and surf brand. But I've I've always really liked them. I, I started wearing them when I lived in Hawaii, and uh, yeah, once I find something that works, I I'm kind of a creature of habit. So I've I've used Electric for probably six or seven years and then hats um ultra makes some good hats uh let's see nathan makes some good hats swiftwick makes hats h&m makes hats so there's always plenty of hats to go around but i definitely yeah i always wear a hat just because um a i'm bald but you know b that comes with with uh different challenges with you know regulating body temperature and keeping the sun off your head and things like that and keeping sweat out of your eyes so i'm definitely a hat guy but and then, um, in terms of new race nutrition, like what's your, what's your go-to during a race? How do you fuel yourself? Um, so kind of that, I kind of think of it in terms of like, um, like pillars and, um, the pillars have always been, have always been, uh, you know, at least for a really long time have been first endurance nutrition. So I, I really like the, the different products they have available uh, both, you know, before, during and after, um, and then kind of f- filling in those pillars in terms of kind of building everything else. I, I, I'm pretty simple. I, I just eat food. I just eat calories. Um, I've found that as I'm training, um, excuse me, plant-based, uh, carbs do the best while I'm running and training. And, um, that's as simple as, you know, uncrustable PB and J's or like, Nutella sandwiches or, um, you know, gummy worms and gummy bears and stuff like that. I, I just eat, I just eat food. I, I'm not, I'm not too specific beyond just making sure I use the, the first endurance products to get my, and then you know, what's, what's a taper week like for you when you're going into the boss marathon or whatever race you're doing? Oh man, I'm not a good guy to ask that. I, I, uh, 
my Boston week was 130 miles. I, I, uh, I don't like to taper very much. I, I would okay. rather go in, um, I'd rather go in a little bit, uh, overworked and, and lean and mean than, than to go in overrested. I put on weight really, really, really quick. And, um, and I feel pretty stagnant when I take too much time off. And so, uh, if I, if I taper too much, I have to, will you slow the, have, will you slow your speed down that week? Even though your yeah, volume I mean, will stay up? Yeah. Typically so like intensity I, will drop. Yeah. I, I, you know, the athletes that I coach and, you know, I, I understand how a taper works. I just haven't had a lot of, um, great experience at myself with the taper. So I, I typically will do a pretty sharp taper. So usually a couple of weeks leading up to a race and then especially the last, um, seven to eight days before the race, I'll, uh, you know, I'll definitely drop down the volume, but, um, but yeah, I, I just make sure that I get, uh, some quick, you know, race pace specific work and strides and drills every day just to accompany the volume that I do. But I mean, that's, that's related. Um, I have a Patreon supporter, Phil, who asks, I'd, I'd be interested to know what kind of strength training he does. Have you seen that guy's abs? Exclamation. <laughs> so you got an ab, an ab oh, fan. Um, and any uh, beard growing <laughs> tips would be appreciated. <laughs> beard, beard growing tips. You know, beard, beards are kind of like, um, that's one of those things where the less work you put into it, the the better it does. So it's it's the opposite of the the law of the harvest. It's just just leave it alone and let it grow, you know. And in terms of strength training, I I uh, uh, I don't do a ton right now. I like I said, I did I did way too many push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups for years and years and years of my life growing up. But I I I try to keep things pretty limited now. I I put on I put on muscle. So not, wait, not wait, too many wait, ab exercises or no, um, okay. no, not really, but interesting. Um, Except for running, running is inherently an ab exercise. So yeah, if you're, is. if you're lean enough, they're there, but yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just kind of how it works. <laughs> and I, I'm still convinced there's something in the water in Flagstaff between the, the running and the beard growing. I'm <laughs> convinced no, beard... there's something there. A beard is like an accessory in Flagstaff. It's cold. It was negative five this morning, and um, you know you walk outside and you your 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 skin will literally freeze. And and so it's nice to have it's nice to have a buffer, and it just keeps you from <laughs> having to amputate pieces of your face. But so I got three more questions. I I really appreciate all the time you've given me here. Um, of course, these are these one will be deep. Um, two will be kind of. You know, topical uh, CCC UTMB. I know the Coconino Cowboys are showing up. You know, for Western states, and then I've noticed a lot of them will be making their way out to Chamonix. Is that yeah. something that you'd like to do eventually? I mean, it's it's almost along the same lines as uh, trans trans Rockies. You know, type racing um, in terms right. of the vert. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I was out there last year and it was definitely something I immediately fell in love with. And, um, that was the, the plan for the plan for this year before that, that sacral fracture was, um, Boston Western and then, you know, some type of event at, at, um, in Chamonix if I could. So, so I, I was hoping for that. It's the greatest trifecta. Yeah. It's definitely on the, on the agenda, but, um, cool. I'll be, I'll be there again this year. Um, 
you know, in some way or fashion. But I'll, uh, that leads yeah. that leads perfectly to my next question, since um, I'll I'll be out there for CCC. Um, oh, what's what's your favorite kind of beer? Are you a beer drinker? Oh, geez, you know, I I grew up pretty um, pretty orthodox, and uh, so I I went through high school and college with you know finding other ways of self medication, you know. Yeah. potentially yeah. more or less self-destructive but, but but um but no i'm i'm uh i haven't explored that too much i think that probably um that helps the the eight pack of abs <laughs> probably i probably have an eight pack too if i if i weren't drinking any beer uh, <laughs> what's just, your favorite beer um i'm i mean sufferfest beer is a uh, right. a show sponsor and their blonde is amazing um, nice. and they, they take care of their athletes and, and they're really supportive of the community. So I'm a little biased too, you know? Yeah, for sure. There's, there's some good breweries in Flagstaff. There's, um, I definitely spend a lot of time, you know, that's a, that's kind of a common spot where we hang out, but, but yeah, I, I don't do moderation very well. So I've, I've found that it's best that I, yeah. you know, tr- tread lightly in that area. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I mean, at least you know that. And then I wanted to close on on what drives you because you're super motivated. You have been since, like we talked, you were in high school trying to, you know, break all these really ambitious records. I mean, you basically wanted to go to college and master in seven different things. Um, like you're you're highly motivated what drives you when you wake up every morning? I mean, you have a, a big family, you have so much going on, um, and you, you've excelled at, at running. Um, what motivates you? Man, that's a, that's a deep question. Um, dang, you know, I could, I could give kind of trite answers like, I don't know, man. It's 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 tough to, to put that into is it just natural? Were you just born with this desire to make the most of things? I mean, it seems like know, it's I, innate. Yeah, I feel like we've got kind of one one shot at this, and uh, and I, I, you know, honestly, I think this is what it is. I I think that more than anything, um, I'm offended by. Um, I'm offended by waste in any, in any, um, way, shape or form. Um, whether that's waste of, of time or talent or opportunities or food or, um, experiences or money. Uh, I, I am, I'm so turned off by, by that. And, and I think some of that has had to do with living in places where, um, people don't have enough and you know seeing that we you know the curse of our civilization is is the excess that we have and um yeah i I think the fear of waste is what is what drives me more than anything so the fear of wasted opportunities and the fear of wasted potential and and the fear of um just you know um 
giving anything Me, less than your yeah. your best. Uh, yeah, kinda you know, goes maybe back it to comes, that a little maybe, bit. Maybe it comes back to pre, you know. And um, I, I know it's not a it's not a great way to, you know, to say that what drives you more than anything is is fear of something. But I I don't ever want to um, look back and have regrets that I that I wasted an opportunity or an experience or time or um, and that that you know early on that led to excess and extremes and um, obsessive uh, components of my life and and now more than anything I think it it has led to moderation because you know I, I don't want to miss experiences in time but that, that has to do with also not wanting to miss experiences with with my family with my girls with my wife with um you know everything good that life has to offer and um yeah i think that kind of is it but i think it's a a perfect place to end and you're truly gifted in in multiple disciplines and i have a lot of respect for you and i I know you're going to heal up here soon and be even stronger as always. So thanks for taking all your, all the time here and uh, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. First of all, yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I have, let's see on Twitter, I think Twitter and Instagram, it's the same. It's um, at Tommy underscore ribs, R I V S that's short for rivers. So at Tommy <laughs> underscore ribs, um, Facebook. Oh, I, I don't, I haven't been on Facebook Personal. in months. So yeah. 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 I mean, it's, the yeah. listener needs to support, uh, Tommy here on Instagram. I mean, his, his supporters are really lacking and we need to all get behind him. Um, <laughs> you, you have, you have some pretty strong support there. So, and I love your pictures on Instagram. Truly. It's fun. Well, thank um, you. That's a, there's some great photographers that I've been lucky to to you know to capture what i love doing so i'm I'm really lucky to have a good you know support team and stuff but thank well you. i appreciate it again that was that was a fun conversation we hit on just a ton of great topics and i'll stay in touch and have a great day absolutely man thank you all Thanks. right i appreciate it take care and that's the episode hope you guys enjoyed it Big thank you to Tommy Rivers Pusey for taking all that time. And I didn't want to edit anything. I thought it was a great conversation, so I left almost everything in. Um, and that's how I just have done every every episode so far. I don't like to edit, so hopefully you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Hammer Nutrition, Sufferfest Beer, Bigger Than the Trail, and Patreon supporters, you guys know who you are, Train for Ultra X our closed Facebook group and virtual group runs. Having a good time doing it. Really appreciate your support. And check out trainingforultra.com for everything else. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. And uh, have fun. Enjoy your training.